had someone to love me, someone to call me their own. Oh, I wish I had someone to live with, cause I'm tired of living Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one small slice of American writing. I look at the books collected, the books and stories and poems and essays and nonfiction writing collected in the Library of America series. Um, And today I am continuing uh, a series that will be in nine parts. Um, This will actually be the longest series on a single novel, not the longest on a single volume of the Library of America, but it's it's the longest on a single novel that I have completed in this, or I will complete in this series, and I am looking currently at An American Tragedy by Theodore Dreiser. It's an epic story about uh, a young man put on trial for the murder of a working class woman, and uh, Basically, it allows this setting, this case, allows Dreiser to build up this wonderful st- uh, picture of American life in the early 20th century. It's really one of the high points in the naturalist tradition. Of course, along with Frank Norris and a few others, Theodore Dreiser is, is like the, the peak of the American naturalist movement, something we looked at before when we looked you know, closely at, at Frank Norris. Uh, it's a really great novel. I recommend everyone to to read it. I know it's very long, but it's a novel that really does keep your interest throughout it because Dreiser is able to do so many different things. And it's while it's not episodic, I think it's it's the 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 plot is fairly fast paced, right? He doesn't dwell on one thing too long. He doesn't overstay his welcome on any issue and everything kind of fits together very nicely. So it does keep his interest. It kind of does some world building of America at the time. And it's just, it's just really well done. And I'm kind of really falling for this novel to tell you the truth. Um, In the previous two episodes, we looked at the first 200 pages of, of an American tragedy. And in those parts, we met Clyde Griffiths, a young man who is raised in this very, very religious and, uh, and rather stifling household in in Denver at the time, where he's in, right, he's in Kansas City for a time, and later on his family moves to Denver. So he's out in the West. His parents make him go to help him with their mission work, and they're, do, they're kind of urban missionaries, which was a kind of a progressive area fad, right, to set up settlement houses and other kind of outreach centers for working class people and poor people in the cities, right? So the idea and all that is you need to reform the cities because that's the center of where like moral failing is taking place, right? There's a lot of attention in the early 20th century on the cities as a source of hope and potential, but also as a source of problems and flaws in American life, right? And where the contradictions in American life dwell. So one response to this was the social gospel movement. And that's kind of where Griffith's, Clyde Griffith's family that's what they're involved in. But the result of this is he grows up very poor. He grows up very uneducated. His, his parents don't have the money or time to give him a proper education. And he eventually wants to reach out. And he wants to go out and get a job and get a craft maybe. But he doesn't have the education to do that. He doesn't really want to work in like manual labor industry. So he's very frustrated about the lack of opportunities his parents have, have left for him. 
things change for Clyde Griffith when his sister basically gets uh, swept away by a young man promising marriage and a happy life. Um, she basically disappears and, and goes away from from home later. She'll come back a little bit later. Now, Clyde eventually is able to break free of his family and get a job. And he gets a you know, few various few odd jobs, but eventually gets a job in a hotel as a, essentially a bellhop at a hotel. And he he makes a lot of money at this job, especially the tips he gets. And it's a pretty lucrative job for him, especially given, you know, have, you know, his poverty that he, he came out of. But he also kind of interacts with people who introduce him to sexuality and, and, and kind of a social life outside of the home. So he starts to drink and especially, yeah, he, you know, most importantly, he has sex with prostitutes. That, um, and he has a lot of money to participate in public amusements. So there's a theme here uh, about, I guess, the working class experience and how the working class interacts with consumer behavior, particularly in the realm of, of, of gender relations, right? And dating and treating and stuff like that. He eventually starts dating a woman named Hortense and she's, you know, she's trying to get him to spend as much on possible with her. And she's trying to delay having sex with him as long as she can. So there's a bit of a back and forth about gifts and treating and dates and sexuality. And Clyde gets more and more frustrated about the lack of output, if you want to put it that way, he's getting from his relationship with Hortense. But eventually it reaches a, a transformation with a fur coat. Hortense wants a fur coat of like 100 and this costs like $125. And she wants Clyde's help in buying it on credit or buying it with cash or some kind of layaway system. And there's a whole interesting section where she negotiates with uh, the vendor, you know, about how she should pay for this and everything. But that is, that's the issue. It eventually, Hortense agrees that she is going to eventually, eventually have sex with Clyde in exchange for money to buy this fur coat. Right now, before that can happen, though, they have a nice night out. Oh, one more thing, though. Clyde gives most of his ready cash to Hortense to pay for this fur coat, which means when his sister comes back, living secretly back I think it's still in Kansas City. His mother, her, his mother's taking care of his sister. She's come back because she's pregnant and she's been abandoned by her, her, her lover, right? The man who promised to marry her. her. His mom desperately needs money to help support his sister during their pregnancy and the childbirth and caring for the child and everything. But Clyde denies having enough money to help with that. So he instead he gives the money to Hortense. Now, they have a nice night out where he kind of faces some of his jealousies over Hortense's behavior with other young men. Um, and on their way home one day, they get into a, a car accident and it kills a young girl. They flee the police and go their separate ways. One of the people, I think the driver gets captured and he gives everyone else's name that was in the car. So Clyde Griffiths has to flee and he eventually flees out to Chicago. Well, he goes to all of these different cities throughout America, but eventually he kind of settles in Chicago and he gets various jobs, kind of similar jobs to what he had before, kind of working in hotels. He's able to write home once in a while, but not much because he really can't give specifics that would help the police find him. He's basically on the run. While he's working in one of these hotels, he runs into Samuel Griffiths. And Samuel Griffiths is his 
uncle who owns a factory in Lycurgus, upstate New York. Lycurgus is a made-up town, but it's it's in upstate New York somewhere, like on the Hudson River somewhere. I'm not quite sure exactly the location it is, but it's it's in that area. Utica, Albany, that 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 neighborhood. He owns a, a factory there that makes these shirt collars. And Samuel Griffiths invites him to, if he says, if you come to upstate New York, we'll give you a job in this factory. And that's a job that's going to pay less than what he's currently making, but he thinks he can reconnect with his family. He can maybe get, you know, a step up in the company if he's working with a family member. And therefore he decides to go on to, to Lycurgis, to New York, to take up this opportunity. And that's where the second hundred pages or so of the novel leads off the third part of the novel or the third not the really third part but the third hundred pages right the third section i'm going to be looking at covers really clyde griffith's incorporation into this family business into this um, shirt collar company now if you don't know these shirt collars that was kind of the the trend i think in much of the 19th and into the early 20th century where men didn't always change their shirts every day but they would wash and change their collars and, you know, their cuffs, too. These, these things would come off, right? And they would be starched, and and sometimes they could be designed in different ways. But you would replace those, but the shirts underneath would more or less be the same. And it, it was just a, the way people wore clothes in those days. I guess it was more, it was cheaper, right, than buying a bunch of new shirts, right? You would just change your collar, and that, that would get dirty, and you could just wash them and, or replace them cheaply. This company makes these these shirt collars that's that's what they do and Clyde Griffith gets a job there and he's that's kind of where we leave off at about the 200 page mark and mostly this part's about him moving up in this company and starting to find an opportunity for him in this in the in upstate New York where he actually can move up in this company now there's a lot of nepotism involved here it's not you know, Clyde does sort of do his job, but he's fast-tracked for promotion. And eventually he becomes head of, over, like, kind of the, the manager of a floor or supervisor of a floor that mostly has young women working piece-rate jobs. You know, very casual workers working piece-rate jobs, all women. And he becomes the manager of that, of that part. And this really is very crucial. This is a crucial moment in Clyde Griffith's life in that it, introduces him to the woman who is going to be uh, his love interest and then later on the plague of his existence um, for much of the rest of the novel until, well, until the last third or so. Now, after Clyde starts working in this um, factory, he's frustrated, he, he's empowered and he has a lot of hope for his future, but he's also very frustrated in the fact that he's not really that much into connected to the Griffiths family, that they are a bit hesitant about letting him in too much. They don't really know much about him. He just has the name and he has the looks. He, he kind of looks like the Griffiths. And it's, it's often mentioned that he's mistaken for different um, members of the Griffiths family. The most important contact person he has is this guy, Gilbert Griffiths, who is the the son of Samuel Griffiths. So basically his, his cousin. And he is pretty strict on Clyde and has very high standards about his performance and his ethical behavior and the way he interacts with workers. And that's going to be a source of tension in this part of the story. And whenever the question comes up about whether, you know, they should hire Clyde or promote him, it's always Gilbert who hesitates and says, well, I don't know about this. For instance, here's a passage. 
Well, I can't see that he's so much, replied Griff- Griff- Gilbert. He's fairly intelligent and not bad looking, but he admits that he's never had any business training of any kind. He's like those young fellows who work for hotels. He thinks clothes are the whole thing, I guess. He's had on his brown suit and brown tie and hat to match the brown shoes. His tie is too bright, and he has on one of those bright pink striped shirts he used to wear three or four years ago. Because his clothes aren't cut right, I didn't want to say anything because he's just come on. But we don't know whether he'll hold out or not. But if he does, he's going to pose around as a relative of ours. He'd better tone that down, or I'd advise the governor to have a few words with him. End quote. And so there's a couple concerns there. One is he seems to be lower class, right? Here we're a shirt company, and he doesn't know how to dress properly. That's the first problem. And then added to that is the fact that he is going, he's the kind of person who wants this Griffith name, right? It's, it's the one thing he brings from his family. You know, the one thing his family left him was this name. And this name is kind of trash back in Denver, where he, you know, you know, in the West where he came from. But here it's something, right? So he's going to want to use that name to move him into a different level of society. And that's actually true. Clyde has that interest. And that's actually something that Gilbert here is already warning his family of. Now, as he starts working, he is kind of thrown back into similar patterns. And Clyde is very much, has this, has a problem with patterns in his life, I think. One is like, he finds people he's working with that kind of pull him into kind of the dance hall scene and into the night scene and the, you know, into the dating scene. And this kind of distracts him from his work and his real purpose in life. And he's very much distracted by central pleasures and the, these kinds of various distractions. And everywhere he works, he seems to find someone who's his gateway to it. I suppose it's like an alcoholic who everywhere he gets a job is going to find the alcoholic, right? The person who's going to be able to go out on happy hour with them every day. You know, and alcoholics tend to be good at finding the other alcoholic. You know, and it's kind of like Clyde's that way with with people who, who kind of know the dance hall scene or whatever. So in this workplace, it's this guy named Dillard, and he's the one who introduces him you know, back into that part of life, which caused him so much troubles back in Kansas City with Hortense and the the fateful night in which which forced him to have to flee flee town. And he couldn't really do this back in Chicago because he was on the run, but now he feels more confident and secure and he starts to think, well maybe I can start to reintegrate, you know, that part of my in that that part of it into my life. Quote There formulated itself inside Clyde's mind the question as to what, in regard to such proposals as this, his course here was to be. In Chicago and recently, because of what happened in Kansas City, he had sought to be as retiring and cautious as possible. For after that, and while connected to the club, he had been taken up with the fancy of trying to live up to the ideals with which he had, the seemingly stern face of that institution had inspired him. Conservatism, hard work, saving one's money, looking neat and gentlemanly. It was such an eveless paradise, that. End quote. And so that's another, I think, problem with Clyde's behavior, is that he's, in a sense, quite impressionable. And in this sense, he wants to be like the Griffiths of New York. You know, his family, the Griffiths out west, are religious. He didn't want to be part of that, but he's very much enamored by this upper class. Even before he ever met Samuel, he, he heard the stories of Samuel Griffiths and wanted to be like him and wanted to work for him. And he dreamed of that as a very young man. So that is... And, and as he does that, he, he's willing to kind of change his values and embrace values. He doesn't have a good reason for embracing kind of conservatism and the work ethic and you know, like this pro-capitalist line of his factory-owning uncle. But he does it 
for no other reason than to be part of that world that he wants to join and be a part of. And then join with that, he's being torn by the pull of the street and the dance hall and all of, of that. He starts to date. He starts to meet girls out uh, with Dillard as he starts to explore the nightlife a little bit more. And then he's, you know, these are working class women like Hortense, like women he met before and he had trouble with. I mean, he had, that's an, and that's another problem with, I think, Clyde Griffiths is he never really outgrows old slights and old offenses. And so he's always compared all the women he meets to Hortense. And he always assumes they're all charity girls or they're all just trying to use his money to get something. And and that's going to be really tied to his tragedy, his fate later on with um, um, with the woman we're going to meet shortly. That's, you know, it's the, kind of the this one woman he dated for a short period of time in his youth, you know, has such an over powering effect on how he interacts with all women afterwards it's really almost it's kind of bizarre how powerful uh, Hortense's shadow is on on his relationship with others so at this part of his life he's really pulled between kind of the dance hall and the working class women that dwell there and Dillard and that that kind of group and his desire to be closer to the Griffiths and then he even things start to change then when he gets finally gets invited by his aunt Elizabeth Griffith to the house to have dinner and the excuse for them taking so long is that Samuel's been busy he hasn't been around but now he's back and and where we want to invite you to the house for for like dinner one day and it's not a big thing she's the letter says but please please come we want to you know get to know you a little bit better now the dinner it goes fairly well but Clyde is filled with jealousy he's filled with feelings of inferiority around his family, especially Gilbert, Gilbert Griffiths. The chapter, I think this is chapter nine of book two of An American Tragedy, it ends like this. How wonderful it must be to be a son who, without having to earn all this, could still be so much, take oneself so seriously, exercise so much command and authority. It might be, as it plainly was, that this youth was very superior and indifferent in tone towards him. But think of being such a youth, having so much power at one command. So he gets a little bit essentially power hungry at this point in his career he wants to move up now the chance comes shortly after now the chance comes a few chapters later when he's finally invited he's promoted essentially and he's given he's he's earned enough respect from the gilberts or for not from the gilberts from the griffiths in lycursus and in the factory that he he, he can run a department Right, so this is kind of the big break he's he's wanted. I don't know if he's earned it. I, I wouldn't say he's earned it. There's certainly the fact his name is going a long way in getting him that promotion. If he was just a worker starting, he wouldn't have gotten that. And I don't think Clyde is aware of that. He he thinks he actually sort of has, has earned this. But nevertheless, it is a big break for him. And it allows him to, to see his way up, not only into into management and into kind of higher levels in the company, but into that social circle that he wants to gravitate to. The, the one he can go enter really as a working class, you know, factory worker, but as a manager, as a, as a department supervisor, you know, he can, you know, and as a Griffith with the name, with those two things together, he can really start to enter into, into high society. And he's given this job. It's $25 a week, which is, almost significantly more than what he ever made before. I mean, I think he was making like $10, $15 a week tips back at the, 
at the hotel. So it, it's significantly more money. It's but it's really the prestige. Now Gilbert sits him down and gives him all the rules at one point. And the rules are essentially you can't fraternize with the factory girls, right? And there's a couple reasons for this. One is just the the whole issue of, you know, we have single girls here, you know, they're naive farm girls in many cases. You really can't, you know, be sexually involved, romantically involved in them. I, he's never told this in such direct terms. You know, it's it's all in the roundabout way that people in the early 20th century talked about these issues. But, you know, they, he was very clearly said you should not be dating, you shouldn't be fraternizing with uh, the factory girls, right? And it's not only because you're the supervisor, but you're a Griffith, right? So your name is something that's important to us and keeping that name clean is very is an important part of your job and that's essentially what he's told by gilbert griffiths in in quite a lot of detail here's how it said uh, well now then went on gilbert as if to supplement clyde's thoughts in this respect what i want to know of you is if i trouble to put you in the department every even temporarily, can I trust that you'll keep a level head in your shoulders and go about your work conscientiously and not have your head turned or disturbed by the fact that you're working among a lot of women and girls? Yes, sir, I know I can, replied Clyde, very much impressed at his cousin's succinct demand, although after Rita, a little dubious. If I can't, now it is time to say so, persisted Gilbert. By blood, you're a member of this family, and, and to our help here, and especially in that position of this kind, do represent us. We can't have anything come up in connection with you at any time around here that wouldn't be just right. So I want you to be on your guard and watch your step from now on. Not the least thing must occur in connection with you that can any comment on unfavorably. You understand, do you? And then Clyde agrees, but he gets the promotion. But there's a strict warning that he's not supposed to essentially interact. Um, he's, he can't be me tooed by any of the factory workers because it would be a, more important than just because if he was just the the, the head he could be fired or whatever right? but he's a, he's a Griffiths so his name is something he has to preserve and this is something that's going to affect a lot of Clyde's unfortunate decisions in upcoming uh, chapters of the book at this point in the story though Clyde is stuck between he, he really can't be with the, the, the kind of dance hall girls he'd been pursuing prior to his promotion and he's not yet close to the other socialites he, he's not really being invited to the party you know so to speak so he's kind of between them um this is the opening of chapter 14 of book two quote in the same way clyde on encountering her was greatly stirred since the abortive contact with dillard rita and zeller and afterwards the seemingly meaningless invitation to the griffiths with the introduction to and yet only passing glimpse of such personages as bella sandra fitchley and bertine cranston he was lonely indeed that high world but plainly he had not yet been allowed to share in it and yet, because of his vain hope and connection to it, he had chosen to cut himself off in this way. And to what end? Was he not anything more lonely than ever? Mrs. Peyton, going to and from his work, but merely nodding to people or talking casually, or however sociably with one another, the storekeepers along Central Avenue who chose to hail him, or even some of the factory girls here in whom he was not interested, or with whom he did not dare develop a friendship. What was it? Just nothing, really. And yet, as an offshoot of all this, of course, he was not a Griffith. And so entitled to the respect and reverence even on this account. What a situation, really. What to do. So this is his dilemma. And it's into this dilemma that he meets Roberta Alden. Ro Roberta Alden is really the, one of the central characters in this novel. And it's important to talk about her a little bit. She's one of the factory girls that works under Clyde um, in this 
in this part of this factory, they, they make the collars, right? And they're peace workers. And they're often, some of them are kind of more urban factory girls. Some like Roberto Alden are farm girls who come in, you know, to make, to make money, right? So they're, they're very naive. And Roberto Alden is, is a naive, but quite perceptive and very beautiful, obviously. I mean, she's, she's kind of an impressive figure. Um, you know, we often see her through Clyde's eyes later in the story as very nagging and, and threatening in ways. I mean, we understand why she makes these threats. I, I think her, her, her arc is, is understandable to, to be sure. But when we see it through Clyde's eyes, she's often presented much in a, in a more demonic way. But she's really a nice girl and she's kind of an impressive girl. But it's much more about class for Clyde than it is about the actual value of these women. And that's going to be something that really affects them. I, I think we're supposed to see Roberta as an intelligent, just basically a good, a, a kind person, a perceptive person, but but a bit naive and from a lower class rural background. She's also not like the morally suspect girls that he often would, would you know, he used to hang out with but but had to break himself away from because of his promotion so she's a little bit more respectable in that way but she's not the higher class women um, that she wants to meet like Sandra Fitchley is the one that's going to emerge later in this novel as the romantic interest from the upper class that's going to pull them away from Roberta but at this point Roberta becomes almost the the compromise position right the the woman who seems morally you know proper to date except that he works for she works for him but she's not she's not the like the dance hall girls and but she's not that kind of unreachable elite yeah that 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 Clyde at this point in the story feels he can't reach and he feels he can't get to so, so anyways my point being he seems to be just really conflicted and confused about his own class standing and the class that he should belong to and the class that he wants to pursue right I think actually he would be very happy with the Hortenses and the other um, kind of dance hall girls but he doesn't feel he really can you know be with them because of his status as a, a kind of a manager as a supervisor of a of a factory floor now but there's a lot in Roberta Alden that attracts Clyde um, from very early on in when they get to know each other quote on the other hand while Roberta was not of that high world to which he now aspired still there was that about her which enticed him beyond measure day after day and because so much alone and furthermore because of so strong a chemic or temperamental pull that was so definitely asserting itself he could not keep his eyes off her or she from his there was an evasive which stirred and a feverish eye flashes between them and after one such case a quick and furtive glance on her part at times by no means intended to be seen by him had found himself weak and then feverish her pretty mouth her big lovely eyes her radiant yet often shy and evasive smile oh and she had such pretty arms the thin lithe sentient quick figure movements if he only dared to be friendly with her, to venture to talk with, and then see her sometimes afterwards, if only she would, and only if he dared. Confusion, aspiration, hours of burning and yearning, for indeed, he was not only puzzled, but irritated by the anomalous and paradoxical contrasts with which her life had presented. Loneliness and wistfulness, as against the fact that it was being generally assumed by such as knew him that he was rather pleasant and interestingly employed socially. End quote. Um... Yeah, they're both very lonely, right? So Roberto comes from the farm. She's traveled a long way. She's away from her family. 
So she's kind of lonely. He's very isolated because he's kind of caught between classes. And so it's not surprising that they, they start to meet each other. It does seem their attraction is mutual. And it's been something that Dreiser built up a lot in the first part of the novel is that Clyde seems to be a good looking person, although maybe he didn't really know it when he was young because of his cloistered social network. But as he grows up and gets on his own, he finds out he is good looking and other people talk about him as, as fairly good looking. And Roberta is is very good looking and they they have something in common kind of in their emotional state, especially in their, their loneliness. And they quickly start to I don't want to say fall in love. Roberta seems to fall in love with Clyde. If if Clyde really falls in love with ever anyone, it is is kind of dubious in in my view, having read a little bit farther into the novel. But they both seem to develop an interest and an attraction to one another, and and that's sort of where we leave off. So this this is around page two hundred to around page three hundred in the Library of America version of an American tragedy. It takes us up through book two, chapter uh, sixteen. So we'll pick up with chapter 17, and, I'll, and we'll do chapter 17 through chapter 20, 31 uh, in the next episode, which will cover the next 100 pages or so. And that, that section will we'll really look at the relationship between Roberta and Clyde as it develops, and then the beginning of their sexual relationships, and, and you know, you kind of can see where it's going to go, right, um, from, from this point on. Because it's already kind of laid out that Clyde doesn't, he wants to move up, in society, but he's impatient about that, and he he kind of falls, at least physically, you know, kind of has a infatuation with this factory girl, Roberta. So that, that's kind of where we leave off. We see how it develops as a relationship develops, a covert relationship, right? Certainly not one approved of by the Griffiths and uh, allowed in his, you know, in his role as supervisor of the, of, of the firm, but it, it's it's a relationship that does develop. And that's going to be the focus of, of the next episode. So if you're reading along, you can look at those chapters. Um, in the meantime, if you have any of your own comments about uh, this novel, particularly this part of the novel, um, what we learn about factory life, what we learn about uh, class, what we learn about class mobility and uh, or the limits of class mobility, these are all themes that I think Dreiser is trying to get at in this section. Um, and then to the degree that young men in particular are affected in how they look at women by earlier failed relationships. I think it's a really interesting question I keep coming back to as I read this novel more and more is how powerful Hortense's impact on him was. You wonder at the time when you're reading it, why is Dreiser spending 50 pages on a fur coat, right? And these negotiations over sex in a fur coat that was going on between these two um, young people dating. Well, it's because he can't get Hortense out of his mind and he sees all these other women through that lens. So it's, it's there's some interesting psychological things going on there. And I, I think they might still be relevant. They might still be a big part of how um, young men, you know, kind of experience their sexual awakening. So that that's something I think Dreiser is trying to get at here. And I think it's an interesting part of the story. So if you have any your own comments, please leave them below, or you can leave a review of this in her podcast, or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com if you want to contact me directly. So as always, thanks for listening, and I will be back next time with part four of my thoughts on Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy. Story.